What up? This is Dart Adams, and you are listening to episode 99 of Dart Against Humanity. Today is an interesting episode because it's essentially the one-year anniversary of the release of Best Damn Hip-Hop Writing, The Book of Dart, my first book. And conversely, it's the 40th anniversary of the release of one of the biggest albums in my young life, Prince's Dirty Mind. For those of you that weren't paying attention last episode, I recorded it right after I did a virtual roundtable. And it was called This Album Saved 1980. I picked two albums. Everybody picked two albums for their um, experience that they wanted to talk about. My two albums I picked was Zap's self-titled album Zap with more bounce to the ounce on it and several other songs that I love. Uh, Brand New Player is on there. Brand New Player. Um, There's six songs on that album, right? Four of which... I used to play over and over and over again. The final song is like, it's, it's kind of ragtime. And then like, it's, it's the throwback to old jazz. And it has like some, some like uh, harmonica being played in there. Like the old, like old timey uh, harmonica played in there. Bootsy Collins was involved in making it. But that album also has the song that they sampled for uh keep your head up by Tupac. Um surprised more people didn't flip it, but it's perfect. Like this this song is incredible, right? And um the vocals on that album are nuts. They didn't really focus as much on um the talk box. I think the talk box is like prominent on like maybe two songs. It's mo- it's mostly like just normal R and B vocals on there. Like there's a joint on there that's like overwhelmingly instrumental. But the second album I picked was of course Prince's Dirty Mind. Prince's Dirty Mind came out when I was five years old. Five. For those of you that don't remember Prince's Dirty Mind, if you don't, that's really sad, or aren't familiar with it, um, it's an album that features Prince on the front cover with an open trench coat, no shirt, a bandana around his neck like he a damn bandito, and he's clearly wearing bikini briefs. Why is he wearing bikini briefs? Well, he switched up the look once he was told by his management that he could no longer wear uh, tights with no drawers. So he's like, I can't wear tights with no drawers. Like, so I have to wear underwear. Yes. So in his defiant uh, mindset, I'm going to wear drawers and just drawers. But when you flip the album over, it looks like he's naked, but he has the um the coat on. But you can't see the bikini breeches all because you know they're obscured by darkness, a shadow. But what you can see is the man has on stockings. Like to his knees, knee high stockings, like knee socks, damn near. And he's wearing the boots. And you're like, wait, what? 
Now, here's the thing. I saw this album cover and the back cover, and then I opened up the insert where it has the names of the band members on it for the first time. And I'm looking at the album cover, looking at the back cover, looking at what he's wearing. And do you know what I said in my five-year-old mind? Eh, I've seen weirder. wonder what the album sounds like. That was not a deterrent to me at all. I'd seen so many weird album covers, people wearing weird stuff. I'd seen Bowie album covers. I'd seen rock covers. Like, if you're going to tell me that what I'd see Prince, I mean, what I'd see Prince wearing is weirder than what I'd seen Kiss wearing, no. If you thought that if I looked at what Prince was wearing and thought it was weirder than what um, ACDC was wearing or Earth, Wind, and Fire or like, LaBelle or like any band or Parliament Funkadelic. No, I just thought it was what you did. You wore weird clothes. Okay, whatever. To me, it was about the music. And I loved that album, even though I was five years old. And the funny thing was, uh, I talked about how when you're a kid, you don't understand what these songs are about. These songs are about sex and filth, floor and filth. I had no clue. So, I'm singing, my mom thinks I'm singing some song from um, Sesame Street about the parts of the body. You know, my brother and sister are like, boy, stop singing head. You know, but I'm like, it's 1980. Head. You singing about heads. Big deal. It's catchy. I'm going to sing it. Then there was a song called Sister that was so fast, I had no idea what the hell it was about. And I remember my brother saying, the song's about a nun. I'm like, a, he, a nun? And then it hit him. I had no clue what was going on in that song. I never even thought about it. I couldn't even decipher the lyrics. And he's worried about, I don't want this kid um, being scarred by listening to a print song about incest and i have no clue what song's about i barely pay attention to it i just know it's the fast song with the lyrics that go like this that i can't really understand what's going on in the middle of the song you know like i don't know but like party up uptown these are the joints you know like party up got the party up and the crazy thing is that party up is the song that gave us the time because it's a groove that Morris Day was working on and Prince was like hey I need that so what do you want um I could give you this or I could give you your own deal so what you want to do he gets his own deal builds the time around him he wants to be the drummer makes him the front man also Morris Day wanted to be the drummer for uh Prince's band he was looking at the drummer for Prince's band. He was like, yeah, you just keeping that seat warm for me, bro. And Prince was like, I have a drummer. He's like, wait, what? He's like, I have a drummer. But what you can do is you can record our performances on tour. Wait, what? Just carry a camera. Just record our performances on tour. And what Morris hears is, I'm going on tour with y'all. I don't get to play no instruments, but at least I have an in. 
And he worked that in until he came up with the groove for Party Up. And then he got his own situation under the Jamie Starr umbrella. Yes. So let's I think about this album. I think about Uptown. I think about Dirty Mind. When You Were Mind. Uh, got a broken heart again. Do it all night. But what I really think about the most is that there's another song that he used to do that him and Andre Simone came up with that he used to perform on tour because Head is an old song. Head's the oldest song on this album, I believe, because Head's a song he did on his previous tour before he recorded it and put it on this album. So the song he did with Andre Simone, um, that if you watch YouTube footage of the Dirty Mind tour, which I believe started in December, early December 1980 and then ran into 1981, um, there's a specific song on here that it's new wavy. And and this is another thing, too. I came to a realization. I didn't realize Prince, like, listen to Prince songs. This is this Prince songs. I didn't realize that, like, he was making new wave songs. I was like, because when his boy, Andre Simone, left the group, he pretty much went into the new wave, um, the new wave bag, and you don't realize a dumbass Prince was making new wave songs. So like it just hit me not too long ago. I was like, hey, what's your favorite new wave Prince song? I think it's, and then they start naming like songs. I'm like, wait, that's new wave. That was new wave. That was new wave. And I start feeling like the part in um, Scott Pilgrim versus the world. Where he's like, chicken parm isn't vegan. And I'm just like, oh, I'm a dumbass. Y'all think I'm smart. Nope, I'm a dumbass. Because my dumbass didn't know that Prince was out here making new wave. Even though everybody else seemed to know it. Smart motherfuckers. Um, so... Let me actually look up what the song is, but not play it because for some odd reason. um, Oh, and this is something else I've got to talk about. I have I've avoided talking about so far. Uh, I've been getting hit up forever being told about how. uh, Anchor has been like just doing crazy shit. Uh, If you had a podcast that played music, it would just yank your podcast off. And since Spotify owns them, I found out that Spotify does similar things. They just yank your podcast and don't tell you why. You know, and also one of the big issues I've had with um, Anchor recently is that Anchor hasn't been giving people new sponsorships. And it's like, what the hell is that about? So you go like, I've gone a year. Gotta Stop Messing About is the song. Gotta Stop Messing About is the song that Prince and Andre Simone came up with while they were on tour. And they performed it on the Dirty Mind tour from late 1980 all the way into 1981. It ended up a B-side, I believe. But Andre Simone ultimately left the band because he got pissed off that he wasn't getting like his credit. Got to stop messing about. He stopped getting um, credit. He didn't get credit for like his contributions to the band and stuff like that. So he just went solo. 
you know, but you know, it happened. Uh, Prince lost his original keyboardist because when he came out with head and sister, she was just like, no, this goes against my, my Christian beliefs. He's like, that's okay. You can go. I can replace you. And then he went and got uh, Lisa Coleman. And I got to tell you, I ain't miss her. Um, after Lisa Coleman came, Lisa Coleman brought in her friend, Wendy. No, Wendy comes in to replace Dez. He's like, you have a guitar? Yeah, I was like, play me something. You know, then she plays it something. It was like, oh, okay. And then, like, he disappears, like, throws down the smoke, you know. Prince Vanish and comes back, and the next thing you know, he's like, tell your girl she's in the band. You know, or some shit like that. It, it, I'm, I'm jumping around. That's probably not what happened. I'm a historian. I like lying. Um, anyway, so, yes, uh, Dirty Mind was a big part of my young life. Uh, is it one of my all-time favorite Prince albums? It's part of the the whole um, progression, but I don't like Dirty Mind more than 1999. Do I like Dirty Mind more than Controversy? I don't know. I might like Prince better than Dirty Mind and Controversy, but not better than 1999 and not better than Purple Rain. But... I like both Parade and Sign of Times better than Purple Rain. Actually, I like actually like Sign of the Times and Parade better than almost every Prince album. That's neither here nor there. But yes, 40 years ago today was um, Prince's Dirty Mind being released. One year ago was the release of The Book of Dart. Now, The Book of Dart, I did a podcast already. Um, It was either the first or the second episode of this season, I believe, where I talked about, you know, The Book of Dart and, and, and what was going on with it because it was still early in its life. But I haven't talked about really the formation of it and what happened after that because I've been so busy you know, just living and trying to get to the next book. So the book of Dart was pretty much the idea came about spring 2018 when I was approached by Saeed and he was just like, yo, um, you got to put out a book, man. Like it's time, you know, because the book that came out before was um, homies and I was like, yo, you know, it's dope that he got a book. You know, I really think it's dope that yo has a book. And he was like, yeah, so it's your turn. Because we kind of started with you. The original version of the book of Dart was supposed to be about Poison's Paragraphs. I was supposed to pick 60 pieces from the Poison's Paragraphs book. And I did. I edited them down. I put them in a big... um. document and I read them back and I hated it. And I was like, I don't want this book to come out because I write way better than the stuff I did on Poison's Paragraphs. And the thing about Poison's Paragraphs is that I've mentioned it before. I pretty much had a window. My brother went to work. I had my laptop. My brother had his desktop, a G4 tower. 
I would run over to the G4 tower. I had done some research on articles and pieces I wanted to write. I got the uh, the images. I went on Blogger. I wrote the piece, formatted the piece, whatever, got it up, uploaded it, and then I shut down his tower or whatever and make it look like I didn't use it since he's been at work. He's three years younger than me, but he has a job, but I'm, you know, at home doing stuff and, you know, it's either watching the kids or doing some other stuff, what have you. And I would then go back on my laptop and then I would do the prep for the next post the next day. So I had this window to do a post and get it off. And this is and I had no other social media. There was no Twitter, you know, back then or anything else to promote it. I just knew people were going to come to my site in the blogosphere every day to check it. So I didn't have a whole lot of time to do research. Like I would do research here and there, but I'm doing other things. So it wasn't as people like I really love Poison Paragraphs. I'm like, dude, I would never. And I was writing like every day. Damn near. The 100, the 1,096 days that I had poisonous paragraphs, there are 734 posts. 734 over three years. Why? And the thing is, if you think about, damn, you did 734 posts, I took four breaks. There were like times when I didn't go for a month because I had to build my strength back up. I went in the hospital like three or four times during that time. I was just killing myself. Writing for free, trying to get uh, trying to get noticed, you know, trying to build my name. So when I read back some of the stuff that I wrote, I'm like, that's not even right. That's this this grammar is terrible. Like this punctuation is horrible. And I'm like, why did I write about that? Like, who cares? And then some stuff I'm like, wow, this is really good. And I'm looking at the 60 pieces and I'm like, dude, only about 20 of these I want to see uh, the light of day. And of these 20, I could write these way better now. So I was not proud of that book. I didn't want to put it out. And I was released from the deal. Around 2013. 2017, that's when um, Yo's book comes out. I get hit up in spring. Like April um, 2018 was like, you need to think about a book. So I'm like, all right. So I hit back. He's like, do you know what you want to be in it? So I hit Saeed back. And I'm like, uh, here's 32 pieces I did for Knowledge Darts. Here's this piece, this piece, this piece, this piece. And I didn't have an idea of what the like the flow of the structure was going to be. So I'm just sending this like pieces stuff. And the thing is that by the time he actually got around to like, the mass appeal pieces, he had like three of the 32. And he was like, I'm not going to print all of these. I wanted all of them in there because I wanted the book to pretty much be my knowledge darts run because they're all in order. You know, I thought they were all strong articles, but he was like, I need like something to hook people in. I need your personal stuff. Like I was like, I did stuff on um uh my uh my Tumblr, you know. I did this, this, and this. So he's like, yeah, sure. 
But there were other pieces I would have wanted included. But the thing is that the stuff that he picked worked. And when I like the thing was the book had to be proofed, reread. I mean, re rethinged, spaced out this, this formatted, formatted, and then put out. So it took a minute. So from picking that took like summer into fall 2018. Then you pick the pieces, you know. Now we're going into 2019. Then by summer 2019, we're like, all right, we finalized everything. Now we got to do this, 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 have the uh, the test versions. So by the end of August 2019, I know my book's going to come out at any, any moment now. So it might be September. So I'm like, yo, my book might come out. My book's done. My book might come out. I haven't seen my book. My book might come out. You know, it might come out. This is going to come out. September goes and nothing. And I'm just like, oh, shit. So that means my book's going to come out at some point in October. So I don't know when it's going to come out. I just know at some point in October, because it didn't come out September, it's going to come out. Then I just get hit like, bam, it's live. Wait, what? It's live. Wait, what? Your book sends the link to Amazon. My book is out and it's available for sale and my name's on it. I haven't seen it, haven't read it yet, but it, I have Amazon Prime so it could be at my door. It can ship in one to two days. But I'm like, first off, I'm just getting over the shock that the book I've been talking about for months to people to the point where my friends are like, so do you not want to talk about the book? You know, like, is is it like a sore subject? Like, uh, one of my friends, uh, she was like, so do you not want me to bring up the book? You know, like, because I, I didn't know when it was coming out. It had been a month. I've been like, you get up every day and you're just like, well, te- technically get up. I was already up. But you look every day, you anticipate, is this the day my book's going to be out? And it didn't happen. And then when it did happen on October 8th, 2019, when I get that email or I get that text and it's like, yo, it's out. He's like, but don't tell anybody because we want to like, you know, really promote it. I have my Twitter account. I have my IG. I have combined. I have another secondary account with 10,000 followers. So combined, this is like 30,000 people I can get the word out to you know, through social media. So I just tell my immediate family. Okay, I repeat, I just tell my immediate family. My immediate family consists of my younger brothers. There are two of them. My older brothers. No, my younger, yeah, well, two of my younger brothers, two of my older brothers, my big sister, immediate family, all right? Just my immediate family. What does my big brother do? 
My big brother goes on Facebook and says, my brother's book is out. My sister goes on Facebook and says, my brother's book is out. Um, my younger brother, he doesn't have Facebook. He's smart. He got off Facebook. My younger brother is like, yeah, my brother's book is out, but he doesn't really post it like my old, like my older siblings do. Um, what that ha- what happens next is my aunts, cousins, and I have a lot of cousins all post. Oh, my government name. This book is out. My cousin's book, my um, brother's book, my my nephew's book. This book uh, is out. So they post it all on um, Facebook. I don't ever go on Facebook, so I'm not aware this is happening. Okay. And this is over 18 hours. Then on Facebook, what happens is if your immediate family members keep posting about something, they see it. So they're like, oh, his book is out. So they buy the book and then they they share it and other people start buying it. So my other cousins are buying it and their friends and my friends didn't know my cousins. So before I know it, I've sold like 50 copies in Boston already and New England without being aware because I haven't posted a link or talked about it yet. You're following me. Okay, so let's fast forward to October 10th, 2019. I get hit up by Saeed. Saeed's like, um, so I keep getting uh, emails and messages from Amazon talking about they sold out. I was like, sold out? It's like of the initial micro orders and they got to do another one. I said, they've, I think, think, think they're on their third. I was like, what? He's like, I think they're on their third micro order and they're, they might sell out of that one before today is up and they might have to do another one. I'm like, how is that possible? I didn't tell anybody but my immediate family. Then I remember, dumbass, you're related to every third brown person in Massachusetts. And then I'm like, oh, oh, shit. Let me check. Because I haven't gone on Amazon. I haven't checked. So I go and I check and I look at the sales, Amazon sales charts. And that Friday, my book was number one on um, one of the Amazon charts. Now, I didn't know it at the time, but the Amazon chart it was actually number one on is the hardest chart to be number one on. Rap music books. If you're high on rap music books, that's impressive. But if you're high on the secondary chart, that's one that makes people's eyes go, wait, what? And I believe it's called um, music, uh, music history and criticism, right? Music history and criticism. If you're number one on music history and criticism, that's a big deal because that means you're outselling books about the Beatles. You're outselling books about rock. 
You're out selling books about like uh, the history of jazz. You know, like you're out selling like the big books. At one point, I was selling. I was above um, Shea Serrano's new book. Like for about 18, 24 hours, I was out selling, say, Shea Serrano. That had me like, wait, what the hell is going on? So I looked on that day and my book was like brand new, number one new release in music history and criticism. I had no idea that that was the hardest possible character, uh, category to move books in. Now, for example, right now, um, my book is 306 in rap music books. Okay. But. It's 1,729th in music history and criticism to give you an idea of how much harder it is. As of right now, there are 16 books left in stock before the fifth sellout. Um, I have 27 ratings for the book and all of them are five star. Twenty-seven. I remember way back when I had like, when I had six, then I got eight. And when I got up to 10, I was like, yo, I have 10 five-star reviews. Then it was at 14. Oh, wow. And I'm waiting for the first review that's not a five-star. And the thing is that it's really big to have a lot of reviews. It's really big to have a lot of five-star reviews. If you have an independent book that has over 20 five-star reviews after a year and I have had no major press, that's impressive. I have 27. And the other weird thing is that uh, not too long ago, there was a list that I found randomly by um, the book depository and it said 27 must have music books of in, in 2020. And my book was number 26. And I'm just like, wow. And the other books on there was like Nate Patron's book, um, which I love. Uh, Bring That Beat Back. And uh, Kathy Ann Doley's God Saved the Queens. And I'm like, yo, this is dope. I'm on the same book as them. Um, it's the same book list as them. I went back and checked not too long ago. And that list has been cut down to 25. And my name ain't on there no more. And I'm just like, wait, what? Did I dream it? No, because I got screenshots. But, you know, it's neither here nor there. But what happened is I someone wrote about the book in um, one of the Austin news, the Austin newspapers. And he wrote about my book and also um, Brian Coleman's books. Uh, Brian Coleman, the man who wrote Rock Him Told Me and Check the Techniques, volumes one and two. Uh, if, if from Boston, if you have no idea who that is, I feel real sorry for you. Like, I feel deep sorrow for you. You should really know who that man is. But yeah, um, I put, I had the book and the thing about the book, I think I mentioned it. If you go, the book of dart is, um, the previous episode where I talk about my experiences with the book. I had to order my own because there were so 
They were selling out so fast that I couldn't get a promo copy. Every copy that was printed was sold. Like my publisher was like, I have a copy. His son who who did the fact checking too was like, I have a copy. I didn't have any extra copies. So I really didn't even have a copy. And he's in, it's like he's like, I have a copy to, you know, to send. He's like, every copy we put out was sold. And it just got to the point where we were selling so many copies that you would go on Amazon and they took away the one click and they would send you to secondary sellers. And on top of that, um, it would tell you that it would be like a month or two months before you got your book. So they send you to secondary sellers and it was like, you get it in like 10 days. And I was just like, and people were still buying it. And I was just like, between like Thanksgiving and Christmas, I was just like, my book is sold out. And then like right before Christmas hit, like right around like December, they were like, we got some in. And I was like, thank you, God. And then it sold like crazy over the holiday season. Like people were getting them for gifts. And I was just like, all right, this is surreal. This is just weird. Then I would be like on the street or something and someone would be like, hey, yo, I love your book. And I'm like, wait, what? This is pre-COVID. I'm like, wait, what? I went to Newberry Comics just to like, you know, wrap my mind around all the craziness. And I saw my book being sold in Newberry Comics, which is a place I used to go all the time to get, you know, music, comic books, graphic novels, and buy books. And the thing was, a book that I actually had bought from um, Newberry Comics not too long ago, before I went in there, was a book called Inner City, Press- Inner City Pressure by Dan Hancocks. And I was just like, it's a grime book. So that and Grime Kids by DJ Target are two books, two of my favorite books. Right now I'm reading um, Bedroom Beats and B-Sides by um, Laurent Fintoni, who I actually talked about on a previous episode. Uh, he interviewed me for um, for uh, for something else. And I was taken aback when I went to Newberry Comics and I see Inner City Pressure up there in the rack. And, I'm, and then right b- below it, I see my book. So I'm just, I'm bugged out so much that like, I'm in shock, my brain's screaming. And the guy next to me is like looking at the book rack and I'm like, that's my book. And he says, pardon me? I was like, that's my book. So he picks up the book, turns it over. And there's a picture of me on the bottom left. And he goes, that is you. He's like, what? how does this feel? And my brain's like, I write for a living and I can't come up with words right now. So I say, you know, what any other person says when something like that happens. Like, it's a surreal feeling, you know. I come up with something that sounds intelligent. It's like, wow, like, congratulations. I'm like, thank you very much. But I was pretty much on... um. Uh, what's the word? I was pretty much on um on um autopilot, you know. 
I had no bloody clue what to say. And I'm just like, I'm just in shock. Even though I know my book is out and I know that uh, Carl Mello had told me, he was like, yeah, we're going to try to get copies of your book because it was hard to get copies of the book. I, I can't stress that enough. I would go to um, places like um, Bow Market and Bow Market. They'd be like, yo, um, so I tried to buy your book and they're like, it's going to take two weeks. And I go to Bow Market and I go to like Union Sound and there's one copy of my book on the shelf and it's owned and it's bought by the owner and I signed it. It was crazy because I told people, if, if you bring me your book, I'll sign it. Right. But it was so hard to get a copy of my book. It was hard to get someone to sign it. So when I did my um my speaking event at um uh, WBUR. At the top of the year. Oh, no, it was December. It was um at the end of the year. I was like, if you bring me the book, I will sign it right there. Two people brought me the book and I signed it. It was that hard to get a copy of the book. So after like the book got back in stock and people started buying it again, I was like, wow. I was like, and I kept going into the top 100 in rap music books. I think I only got into the top 100 in um, music history and criticism like twice, but I got back into like the top 100 rap music books probably like 20, 25 times over the last um, maybe, how long has it been since it's been back? 40 weeks maybe? Maybe 40 weeks? Between 20 and 25 times I got back into the... um. Rap music books top 100. And the last one was a few days ago. It went as high as number 59 and and stayed there for like a day. And then like it hit 100 and it came out. I mean, it goes up and down, right? Because you have waves of people buying it. Then you have people buying the, um, you have people buying the, uh, the Kindle version. Or then you have people buying it from other outlets other than Amazon. Because you know people hate Amazon. So I posted links to like thrift books and all these other places you could get it. But like, you know, that's pretty much what ends up happening. So it's just one of those things where it's like it's really surreal that there's a book out. And what happened was since my account got hacked, I couldn't um, push that, you know, Super Champ is announced that my next book is coming out in 2021 with them. And it's going to be about... um the anniversary retrospectives that I do is going to be a bunch of those collected in a book. And so I'm doing one right now. I just finished one, uh, the 25th anniversary retrospective for AZ's Do or Die album, which I don't see a lot written about. I mean, there's been a mini documentary here and there about it. And then uh, five years ago, somebody wrote an article for a uh, billboard, which is weird. I'll tell you why it's weird. The 20th anniversary piece about AZ's Do or Die and Billboard claims that the album went gold. It never went gold. It's never been RIAA certified gold. And not only that, but it quotes AZ as saying the album sold a million copies. 
it did. First of all, let's explain one thing about what happened with that with that album. The article, the piece that I wrote about it, the, okay, the 25th anniversary is October 10th, so it's going to hit beat tips soon. But I'm just going to say this. If you go and you read the Billboard article that was written where they quote AZ about the album Going Gold, it's the article in Billboard, and Billboard never certified the album Gold. The single went gold, Sugar Hill. And the album didn't go gold, but AZ says that the album went sold a million copies. Why wasn't it certified platinum? Now, here's the other piece of that. EMI, the label that signed him in 1994 and then released his album in October 1995, that label ceased operations. EMI America ceased operations by 1997 and pretty much sent him and Gangstar to New Tribe on Virgin. Okay? Remember that. Now, that means that we have between the album being released in October 1995 all the way up until the end of 1996 for any EMI album to be certified gold and or platinum to receive that certification before his contract is shipped off. Okay? Never happened. I went and I checked. I found the date when the album went off the black music charts. And the black music charts is lower in sales counting than the Billboard 200, a.k.a. Top Pop Albums. So if it's out of the Black Albums chart by March 1996 and it was released in October and it debuted in late October, you got... November, December, January, February, March. And it went out to early March. So you really got four months. You got four months to sell enough to go gold. And the four months is on the black music charts. You look at how long it was on the top 200 charts. It wasn't a long run. It had a significant drop after the first week. It had another drop after the second week. That lends to this album is not going gold. So for him to say the album went gold is like, okay. But for him to say it went platinum and sold a million copies is crazy. And the fact that you printed that in Billboard and didn't fact check it and printed it in Billboard where Billboard tracks sales and Billboard 1995 tracks sales through what? Say it with me at home, kids. Sound scan. So there can be no question whether or not an album sold a million copies or even went gold. Now, there is a you can argue the album at least went gold. But for for whatever reason, EMI wasn't able to uh, get it accredited uh, and, and, and um, get him his plaques or whatever. 
You can say that. You can make that argument. However, at some point, you figure that proper accounting would have been made for AZ being that he was in um, the firm, that they would have made sure that they counted, yes, this man had a gold album and let's get his get him his credits. But stranger things have happened because back in the days, um, I guarantee you that Sugar Hill Gang, Rappers Delight, they didn't get their accreditation or their proper counting for their sales. But that was different because they quite literally tried to hide how many copies they sold for a myriad of purposes being an independent company. And the same thing was the case with Streetwise Records with um, New Edition's first album. I've been told New Edition's first album sold in excess of 2 million copies of Candy Girl. To this date, I am not aware of New Edition getting any type of plaques from the RIAA for their sales on Streetwise. Why? Because Streetwise was not accredited it and did not pay for their plaques or to have their count to have their album sales counted. And I believe the same thing was true for Sugar Hill. And you figure that at some point, somebody would have been like, hey, um, let's do the right thing and get these people their plaques for the sales of their album. Let's go back and do the research and find and find uh, things, because if we know that this thing was shipping this many units at this time over the holiday season of 1979 and it was selling this many units by 1980 and it moved this place to the charts by June 1980, then we should be able to account for how many sales this unit, this thing has. And we should definitely be able to do it for like New Edition's first album. No, they haven't. And if they haven't done it for then, like what's the deal with, you know, writing AZ's album sold a million copies, but not addressing, we, it's not been accredited by the RIAA and when we check the billboard, because uh, I write for billboard, when we check the billboard records, it doesn't support that this album could have possibly gone platinum, maybe gold, but we can actually check because we use sound scan and we can actually look at the numbers because we're fucking billboard. So things like that make me want to pull my hair out. Actually, it makes me want to go back in time to when I had hair, grow it and then pull it out. But again, my piece on um, AZ's Do or Die should be out. Let's see. Today's Thursday. It's going to be Friday. This weekend. Sometime this weekend. Either Saturday, Sunday, maybe Monday. We'll see. Um, But it will hit beat tips soon. And then it will end up in a book in 2021. See how that works? Yes, I like that. So, yeah, guys, that's been um pretty much this episode. But before I go, I have to talk about something that has annoyed me. And it's funny because this is episode 99 and I only have one more episode with Anchor before it's a wrap. And um, I'm out of this piece. So I just want to say one thing about Anchor 
that's kind of annoyed this kind of annoyed me it's definitely annoyed me i've had the same sponsor for almost a year that sponsor is you might be familiar with it you hear it before every episode anchor now what did anchor try to do not too long ago um, right after I made the episode where I complained about not having any sponsorships for a long time and hitting up people to see what's going on with their sponsorships, Anchor decided to uh, offer us sponsorships. Now, here's the thing: in your uh, on the on your phone and on the uh, app itself, all your sponsorship opportunities come up under money. I repeat. Your sponsorship opportunities come up under money and you will get an email on top of that to your account to, um, on Gmail. If you have a Gmail account, what have you. So you go to money. Right. And you'll see. It'll tell you to record this sponsorship. You've gotten a sponsorship. Record the sponsorship. Here's the script. You can put it here, here, here. It can go uh, beginning. You go mid roll. Uh, mid-roll required, or it can go at the end. So I get my sponsorship, and the sponsorship is for Democracy Works. So I'm about to think about recording it, and I was like, gee, I wonder what the CPM is on this, because I'd love to have two, um, you know, two sponsorships running at the same time. The CPM says zero, and it says charity promotion. And I'm like, what? Charity promotion. But there's a script and it's telling you to record it and it's under money. Why would you put a charity promotion under money, email me about it and then have it like, hey, this is something you really need to record now so you could get this opportunity. Like they present it like an opportunity. It's not a fucking opportunity if it's free. And I'm like the. The audacity of these motherfuckers, how dare they? Like, don't speak to me and my son ever again. So I ignore it. Then I get hit with another one. And this time it's for something called Ballot Ready. And it's another charity promotion. CPM zero. I'm like, if if it's for free, you won't see me. Ignore. And the thing that gets me the most about here, here's the thing. If you're going to ask that a bunch of people that make podcasts that haven't been getting regular sponsorships and I've gone on Reddit, I've gone on all these other places looking at people complaining about the same thing. I haven't been getting sponsorships. I've had the same sponsorship for eight months, nine months a year. I've had two sponsorships, but they ended really quickly. Um, If you want me to do a free sponsorship, at least give me incentive to do it if i have one sponsorship and i do i have one sponsorship that i've been running forever and that is anchor and the cpm on that currently is at 1750 if you want me to do a free sponsorship a charity promotion like um headcount a ballot ready a democracy works which is the third one i ignored what you should do is say hey if you do this for free we will raise the cpm on the ad you do have or the sponsorship you do have. So we'll raise it from $17.50 to $20. If you do Ballot Ready and Democracy Works, we will then raise it from $20 to $22.50. 
If you do headcount, ballot ready, and democracy works, in addition to the one sponsorship you have with us, Anchor, we will do do you even better. We will raise your CPM all the way from seventeen fifty to twenty to two to twenty two fifty to twenty five. So you'll run all four ads, and you will get twenty five CPM on the one ad you have. That is incentive for me to actually record. These charity promotions. Why would I do anything for free in a space where I'm not getting multiple sponsorships? I've had this uh, podcast running since April 2018. Okay, let's go to ended. Um, I had anchor at 10 CPM early. That ended. Flipboard. That ended. Uh, Beach Too Sandy, Water Too Wet podcast That ended really quick, but I got money out of it My Klein podcast, I don't even know if that shit still is running That ended I did Thinking Big with Maisie Williams I have no idea if that podcast uh, is over or not And I did Anchor Voice Messages And I, I kicked up off that Because I did Anchor Voice Messages, Mike Line, And Beach Too Sandy, Water Too Wet all simultaneously Beach Too Sandy, Water Too Wet, I think, ended And then um, Thinking Big with Maisie Williams End up taking a space. So at one point I had three sponsorships running simultaneously. And that was when I was just like caking. And then they all ended and then I went back to Anchor. And I've had that same sponsorship for like almost a season and a half. And you know how long my seasons are. This season began... um, This season began back in March? No, 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 no. This season began back in um May, May 1st, 2020, with episode 76. God damn. So I am recording episode 99. Next week will be the final episode of Dart Against Humanity. Thank you for rocking with me. I'm really surprised at the numbers for the last episode because I didn't have my um my regular Twitter account to to push it out there and promote it. And somehow this is one of the most listened to. My last episode was one of the most listened to episodes in a six day span in the entire history. Um, almost up there with um the one about I did about Boston racism episode eighty eight. The numbers on that one are nuts. Y'all really like y'all really like to hear me talk about my frustrations of being a black Bostonian. Well, you're gonna be in luck because oh boy, I'm gonna have so much more about that. Um, I can't get into detail here, but you, you'll see. Y'all see. Anyways, thanks for listening. Next week, the final episode of Dart Against Humanity, episode 100. Thanks for being along for the ride. One.